that last weekend of the campaign in New Hampshire when Sununu, you know, and they came up with the ad. And the thing about Bush, it's, it's funny. I got a call from Bush after the C-SPAN broadcast about his library. I mean, a gentleman. Oh, he's a great guy. No, I was, oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and you always had this sense that yeah. he really didn't like That's doing right. what it took. But in the but, end, he But his wife it. did. <laughs> I think Barbara was the, uh, what, what is it, Senator Stratton. That was the ad. Yeah. And yeah. taxes and all this stuff. And, uh, yeah, it really hurt. But, uh... Do you think it made the difference? All that in the snowstorm. When he was out there doing all these physical things, and I was walking around the drugstore trying to find a few people to shake hands with the grocery store. He was out there shoveling the snow and running a big snow plow, and, of course, that was all over the news. Yeah. And it was right a weekend before the primary. But uh, he's a good guy. I mean, you know, he's... Uh... He, he seems almost, in some ways, miscast in, in that he's almost a throwback, you know, to the wise men. I mean, yeah. the, the sort of post-World War II generation of a point of... I mean, he'd make a great Secretary of State. But in terms of what the political process has evolved into... Oh, he, that, yeah. That he, he finds it... He, he, he wouldn't like it. I remember after he lost in 92, I invited him. I said, we want to, you know, honor you in the Senate, my colleagues. And you know, this is only a few days after he lost. And he, when he went, got back that night, he wrote me a personal note saying I didn't really want to come. You've seen the note probably. I, I don't, but oh, I'm not surprised. Yeah, I didn't really want to come, but I'm, you know, so happy I did and, Thank you and all, all your colleagues. and that, That's the kind of person he was. Well, and in fact, I remember seeing the video of that. I mean, it was a pretty emotional evening. Oh. I mean, you were, you, the both, the two of you yeah. got very emotional. Yeah. Which, again, I, I guess my, my larger question is, was there, not on your part, but I wonder, was there on their part a concern at the beginning of the Bush presidency about oh, yeah. how loyal a a leader you were going to Oh, be. that was speculation. You know, you could hear, well, Bob Dole, he's going to try to torpedo Bush. And, but then the John Tower th came th thing came along about that time, and, and of course, Tower was a very good friend of mine. Did he get a raw deal? Well, he got a raw deal by the people who shouldn't have given him, I won't name names, but I know a couple of people had drinking problems were up speaking against him on the Senate floor. I mean, it, you know... And, you know, I, I, uh, I, I really like Sam Nunn. I think he's really a great guy. But I thought, you know, I thought he got talked into opposing John Tower. And they were good buddies. But I later forgot it all because uh, we had a memorial service for Tower at the Arlington, and Sam showed up. So, so you know, it's... Yeah. There, there are those who think there's a little bit of payback involved, that, that over the years Tower had been, you know, Tower was a, a very bright guy. Bright, those <laughs> nice stiff collars, British. Yeah, he's very bright and uh, no small talk with Tower. And he did have a problem, you know. I'm not sure it was.
as bad as uh, or, or when it ended or started or all that. Yeah. But uh, but I think that was the thing that kind of convinced most of the Bush people that you know. I even wanted to bring Tower into the Senate, which you have a right to do, and have him testify before the senators, which was permitted under the rules. And he declined because I thought he could look Sam not in the eye and other people and you know make a difference. But apparently, he didn't think really? dignity. I guess it's yeah. coming in and kind of begging for. Yeah. But we could have done it. What about the 90 budget deal? Because that had to have been. I mean, first of all. With if, the if, Don if, Reagan? Well, no, the, the 90 with the. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, Don Reagan would have been. Uh, no, no, no. No, he wasn't no, the yeah, yeah, uh, White House yet. Yeah, that's right. Um, I guess it was Nick Brady was Secretary of the Treasury. But, but you. Basically, it was Bush going back on his word, on the read my whips. Oh, lead, oh yeah, read my lips. Yeah, and, oh. uh, Gingrich, uh, I think they shot down the first deal, and then there was a, a second deal, which I've heard described as worse than the first deal, but uh, in terms of spending controls. But, I mean, if there ever had been a time when you were entitled to say, I yeah. told you so, that would have been it. Yeah. But instead, I was trying to tell the White House because I was working with, uh, I think, Tom Foley and uh, Ross Nikowski trying to work out something else that didn't look like a tax increase. And, uh, you know, I really, it was about midnight, as I remember, and they're still talking to whoever it was at the White House. I don't remember who the, was it, Corlogus or whoever. And I, I still think we can make a better deal here. I don't remember precisely what it was, but they kind of gave up. And, you know, Bush said, well, he had no choice. Democrats ran the place. And what, what are you going to do? i got to have the money. So his, his, he's probably right, too. They, they weren't going to give it to him without a tax increase. And, but he probably never should have said that, read my lips, you know. Isn't that a classic case where consultants get you in trouble. Yeah. I mean, the, the people who run campaigns should be as, kept as far away from governing as <laughs> as possible. Yeah, probably right. And uh, what we're seeing in this campaign. But, uh, and, and Bush probably had his fingers crossed when he said it. You know, I mean, who knows what's going to happen. Say you've got some big conflict and you've got to have money and you've got to... Have, you got to raise because I got in a big dispute in New Hampshire about not signing the tax pledge, you know, with Grover Norquist, who I think now is under scrutiny and should be. Uh, just a gimmick, and it th that didn't help either. That was a later raise. So that was '96. Was there a time in the 90s, I'm not looking for names, but I mean, can you think, was there an instance in the 96 campaign where the handlers, the strategists, whatever you want to call them, advisors, consultants, um, sort of palmed off a, a speech or a oh. message or something that, yeah, that you when, were when really the, uh, with? When the uh, 
log cabin group gave me money. And instead of responding like Reagan did, you know, people agree with me, different issues, we have whatever, yeah. and forgot about it. Instead, it became a, what, three or four or five day story because of Scott Reed and and Bill Lacey to some extent. No, no, you're not going to take it. Got to send that money back. Got to send that money back. You look back on it, it was stupid. You know, how are we going to build our party? You know, that's keep driving people away. So, the speech in Hollywood. Yeah, that it, was another one. It just it didn't feel like you. Yeah. It felt like you were yeah. doing something that you were being. I kind of wanted to do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I believed it. Yeah. <laughs> You didn't write that speech, did you? No, I didn't. <laughs> I, no, I had nothing to do with that. I think that was a Maury speech. <laughs> but John Moran yeah. uh, tempered it quite a bit. John Moran's a very fine Republican and with a lot of money. He was my finance chairman. I'd say a moderate Republican, just a great guy. And I said, you, you really want to do this? We, that's after we're out there. And I said, well... You know, and he started asking, you know, what's it going to get you? I mean, you go out and attack Hollywood, okay, that's a big deal. They're going to get for you anyway. So, is it going to bring you any votes and somewhere else? And all these pretty good questions, which other people thought just it probably wasn't Maury. Come to think of it, go out and crack Hollywood, and that'll that'll surely mean something. So he did the speech, but. I don't think it had much impact. Do you remember the, uh, we were talking with Sheila Burke earlier this week and I've, other people. Remember your response to the State of the Union? Uh, because that was another sort of internal, one sense that there was a real debate going on within the office and the campaign. And, and people, each of very sincere with, you know, your interest at heart. I mean, did you ever feel like you were in the middle of a tug of war? Yeah, probably some of the time. Yeah, I mean you got to you got the party to represent too, of course, and and you may have been, your own views may be a little different. Uh, you know, I remember was it McClure or somebody took a bunch of Republican senators down to White House, think to see Sununu that I wasn't tough enough, and you know all this stuff. Uh, so you've always got, you know, you've got a constituency you've got to deal with. Yeah, so I guess there's, Do you know what it's like poor old Harry Reid now, or, or even Pelosi's got a tougher. I mean, she's got party three different groups, yeah. and she's, you know, she's got to be the leader. So, Do you, do you know what Sununa's reaction to that delegation was? Or? Yeah. I don't know for sure, but it was probably friendly. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, if, yeah, there is a little bit of a history there, is it there? Oh, I always liked his wife better. I think she, I think she was kind of for me, but uh, and and his son's in deep, probably deep trouble. But he's really, a, according to Elizabeth, really a nice young man. Yeah, very bright. Yeah, and Sununu was bright. Well, but. Uh, he got in a little trouble too, didn't he? Oh yeah, well remember, yeah, he was Boston. run out of town uh, for what, using the planes, and I mean, just get his teeth fixed, or something? I don't know. Something. And, it's, and it's that arrogance. It's that there are some very, very bright people 
who think their intelligence shades over into arrogance. I mean, it's it's. Yeah, I, I can remember him walking out of a meeting. I think it was on a disability or some controversial thing. He got up and was marched out of a meeting we were having in my office, trying to work it out with the White House. Yeah, he was. Uh, You know, I never thought he should have been there. I mean, I think it's good to reward somebody because you got to be president, but you make that person your chief of staff. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't think so. What, what, what were the challenges in uh, passing uh, the ADA? Well, again, we had a lot of a lot of conversation with the White House, but we had a guy named Boyden Gray in the White House who was very sympathetic. Really, if you don't know Boyden Gray, you really miss something. Because he was really a friend of people with disabilities, uh, across, you know, strong on civil rights, all that stuff. So he was kind of our go to guy in the White House. Uh, others, you know, the old story this is the government interfering, da da da, telling people they got to make that place accessible and got to. So we tried to use the terms reasonable and cost, and we didn't try to load it up. Uh, I assume a lot of that came from the business community? Yeah. Or opposition? Oh, yeah, yeah I mean, through the White House, you know, the constituency. But, uh, you know, Bush brags about it now, President Bush, 41. And it was a great day. There were probably 3,000 people out there in wheelchairs and gurneys and white canes and mm-hmm. uh and uh, what, oh, what's his name? The one of the leading disability advocates wore this hat. And came from a very wealthy family. He just passed away. Oh, yeah. But anyway, he was up on the podium with Bush, and and uh, it's quite a day. Well, I assume there's another side to this too, because I assume there are those among the advocates, disability advocates, who wanted perfection. Oh, they, oh they're not happy now. In fact, they've, you know, they want to. They want to do a lot of things with the bill. Some should be done. I've been working with Tom Harkin, uh, trying to be helpful without conflicts with the law firm. But, uh, you know, some people just can't satisfy. And uh, I don't care what party or who you are. But it's very important legislation. I don't know who counts the number of disabled. I mean, I think it's... Probably the serious disabled, probably, what, 15, 20 million. If you count them all, they're 45, 50 million people with some disability. Well, some disabilities don't bother people, but uh, but if you're in a wheelchair or you're blind or you're, you know, paralysis, you've got some internal thing that may not show, you know, you've got problems. So, well, and it was bipartisan legislation, too. If you look back, I mean, enough time's gone by now that it's funny. When I look at the first Bush presidency, contrary to the populism at the time, there's actually more of a domestic record there than 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 even he. In some ways, he couldn't take credit for it because taking credit for clean air or clean water would rile the conservatives (laughs) that he had to placate because they never thought he was one of them. He was in some ways, you know, hogtied. Because he was Reagan's successor, 
and people were always looking for deviations from Reagan. I mean, it was a very awkward. Well, people always forget Reagan's early record and all this stuff about how we're going to, of course, he just blames it on Congress and everybody believed it. We're, for every dollar we cut taxes, we're going to cut spending one dollar. Well, never happened. But who did he blame? Congress. And it, while it was this guy up there scuttling the budget, Don Regan. And, uh, but, you know, he, Reagan had that, yeah. well, you know, he'd done the piece. I've seen most, most of them. So. The, uh, did you, <laughs> one had the sense that Bush was increasingly isolated. I mean, after the Gulf War, that it took a long time for that White House to wake up to the political dangers that they were in. Yeah. I mean, did he you, squandered. Did you, he was up to what, 92% approval rating? Yeah. And it went down to 30 or something. And he got nothing for it. Nothing on the domestic front, political front. It just evaporated. They, they didn't use it. Did, did you try to. I, I wasn't in a position to do anything that I can remember, but. Uh, Boy, to think, I think it was 92%. It was not, probably not accurate, but it was way up there. And, you know, you had the world by the tail. I mean, this guy was it. And Congress was ready to respond. I mean, you know, victory. We actually did something and finished it with very few casualties. What, 100 and something? So... I don't know, again, you had Sununu there and others, and they're sort of sitting on their lead, which, which you don't do. There's also, ironically, the sense that you can only now look back and see the Cold War was over, and that yeah. united conservatives. So you lost your unifying enemy. And there was a sense that Bush's historical mission had been performed, that he had done what he had very, very skillfully managed the end of the Cold yeah. War, and that's no small thing. Then, well, the, the one thing got him in trouble was the economy, which, as we all know, you know, did pick up the last quarter, which he didn't get credit for, and that's, you know, what was Clinton, the economy stupid? It, because Bush had a good record, as you said. But when the economy's bad, Nixon's always right. It's always bread and butter. You know, I remember that letter I had, seven-page letter from Nixon. If the economy is good, you'll lose. That's what it said in effect, and it was. Uh, but uh, I think that was the big. And then some people thought he di he didn't really want it. Remember that talk about this guy? Does he really want to be reelected? He doesn't act like it. Doesn't have the fire in his belly. Well, I never saw that. I mean, I thought he was yeah. working hard. Uh, no, we became very good friends. I remember going down there in, uh, was it 92, and I was thinking about not running again. And oh, yeah. went down to talk to him, and he said, well, let's let's talk about this. You know, let's, oh, he said, no, you, you know, you're still a young guy, la, 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 la. And, man, you ought to, I think, was it 92? I guess it was. Yeah. And you ought to do it. And what made you think about not running again? Uh, well, prostate cancer. And, you know, you, 
I didn't know at the time that, you know, if you get it early and all this stuff, sure. survival rate is excellent. So, was that so I, after I had had that, I, that's when I went out and talked to the president about maybe it's time for me to move on. He said, no, no, it's not time. What would you have done? You must have thought about alternatives. What What would you have? I can't imagine you. I mean, I, I still find it hard to believe you walk away. Go ahead and make money. Four years later. Yeah. Well, okay. Like Trent Lott, you know. <laughs> I never had any, so I very well. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I'd really thought about what I was going to do. But, it, see, 92, uh, well, I'd still be young enough to kick around a little. Sixty-eight, right? But, but see, that's interesting because that that at least suggests that you know you didn't have this absolute need no. to be president. I no. mean, that ninety-six was kind of a. I always thought eighty-eight was the year. Ninety-six, I probably shouldn't have been running. If you look back on it, I mean, this all this stuff as well as Bob Dole's term, I never did understand that, but. Uh, I should have won in '88. I mean, that's that was the year. But the um, two dictators you met with, I want to I want to make sure we get them on the record, because you you had a meeting with Saddam. Yeah, in Mosul. And what happened at that meeting? What was the? Let's see, we landed in Baghdad, and they picked us up in one of his planes, took us to Mosul. There were five of us. Remember Metzenbaum and Al Simpson, was it McClure? One of them. Anyway, we had this letter from Bush, which in effect was saying, you know, be careful with Israel. You know, you're getting a little aggressive. We have strong ties with them. We have want to continue good ties with you. Did it? It's a one-page letter, and. We weren't getting the meeting. So King Hussein of Jordan put in a plug, and then we got to Egypt, and Mubarak called Saddam on the phone. and said, you know, I've got these guys here. I know this Bob Dole, you know, all this stuff. And you ought to speak to them. So that's how it really happened. And we got there, and we, we thought, Thought we were going to see him in Baghdad. We put him on their plane, took us to Mosul, took us to this, as I remember, big hotel where he was there and surrounded by all these guys with machine guns. And I remember we we talked a lot about uh, you know some of the good relationships, some of the stuff he was buying from America, like wheat stuff, like that. We talked to him about the letter we were presenting from President Bush. I think Al Simpson got in a few old jokes. Uh, and then he said, uh, I, don't, I doubt it. Simpson didn't care. Uh, but then he suggested we go on a helicopter ride. He said, the people really love me, and I won't take you out on the countryside. So I said, well, I think I need to visit a minute <laughs> And to his credit, Metzenbaum says, no way we're going to go up on a helicopter with that guy. And so we declined. 
So I was happy I took Metzenbaum along. Because <laughs> there was some reported story that some previous delegation who had visited ended up mysteriously. I don't know any truth to it. But anyway, he was, uh, you know, I can't, other than just a nice, pleasant meeting, he wasn't hostile. Didn't, and, and this, of course, was obviously before the invasion oh, of yeah. Kuwait. Yeah. Then when that occurred, did you went over, uh, weren't you, did you accompany the president at one point, or uh, did you go over there? Uh, let's see, I went to Kuwait, but I don't, I didn't. Between, between the, before the liberation of Kuwait, wasn't there, uh, during that period, those several months when, um, I thought at some point you visited the troops in. Um, oh, well, that may have been, yeah. But that, uh, I was also in, I think, Kuwait on the same trip. I'm not sure. Okay. And then I, I did go over there with uh, Clinton, but that was another time. That was a okay. Bosnia-NATO thing. Uh, I did go with Bush. Yeah, where did we go? We went somewhere. It Thanksgiving? Yeah, it was Thanksgiving. Yeah, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. In between the... Uh, well, yeah, the I remember being the, out in the, the desert war. somewhere. I got lots of sand. I remember that. And he was pumping up the troops. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that's yeah. that's right. Who? When, what year was that? That was. Uh, oh well, it'd be it would have been ninety in the fall uh, in the fall of ninety because the uh, the war began in January ninety one. Yeah, that's right. And later, Elizabeth and I went with uh, Hillary and Bill just to visit the troops. So. Uh, and of course, you also had an encounter with Daniel Ortega in, right. in Nicaragua while he was in power. Yeah, as I recall, I wasn't. A, that was more of a confrontational meeting. Uh, not as bad as Milosevic, but because uh, I, I met with him a couple of times too. What was that like? Well, he was. Uh, I think you could say it all because. Uh, this is even since I left Congress. Uh, he, we didn't. He didn't. We didn't understand him. Da da da. And no, I guess I was still there because we were trying to get something passed, and Joe Biden was helping. But he had the little dining room there, and we were in the next room, and the, and the doors were open for lunch. And we were there about eleven o'clock with the ambassador, and about eleven. After a rather long, heated discussion, the dining room doors closed. <laughs> so we knew we were A, staying for lunch, and B, the meeting was over. But at the Ortega meeting, you know, I wonder who went with me then. I don't have... But obviously we weren't supporting Ortega, you know. And, uh, I can't remember who was... Was that in the Reagan years? Yeah. Must have been, yeah. yeah. And all the contra aid and all this stuff, and what? my good friend Biden and, and uh, other Democrats are violently opposed to aid to contras. What do you, you think? Know, we stopped in Honduras too, a, a trip in uh, El Salvador. Yeah. What do you think was Reagan's actual role in Iran contra? Because I've heard so many. You know, everyone's got a theory, and and one of the actually pretty good theories is that 
Someone said, we've talked to, someone said, well, first of all, <laughs> Bill Casey mumbled. Yeah. And Ronald Reagan was deaf. Yeah. And I can imagine Casey going in and mumbling something and Reagan nodding his head. <laughs> oh, I just read the day of it when Reagan, they quoted what when Reagan said, when I make a mistake, it's a butte. And that was his answer to the whole Iran-Contra thing. And he got away with it. So I don't know whether you ever yeah. knew what was happening. I, mean, I think Ollie North is sort of a wild card in the whole thing. There's another theory. Remember, they'd made the switch. If Donald Reagan, there are a lot of people who believe that if Jim Baker was still chief of staff instead of Donald Reagan, the Iran-Contra never would have happened. Oh, well, that, it's just another possibility. Yeah. I don't know why Don Reagan wanted to be chief of staff so badly. I know Nancy didn't like it, but well, I think her judgment was proven pretty correct. But he was always kind of leaning over the president, like he's, you know, I'm right here. Two leaders of the whatever countries, and he's right in the middle. But you know, I, we always got along. Sheila always liked Don Reagan for some reason. And he double-crossed us on the budget. I remember, uh, I think I've told you this before, he came up the next day with champagne and chocolates and all this stuff to my office. This is when, yeah, you had gone out on a limb oh. and got, was that the Pete Wilson vote? or? Yeah, or? and then we got butchered by uh, Trent Lott and Gingrich in the house crowd, Jack Kemp. Yeah. No new, I don't know what, too much spending or something, I don't know. Oh, we were going to cut Social Security. Not, not cut it, but slow the rate of growth, which in this town's a cut. And had we done that, we wouldn't be looking at, you know, the problem we're looking at today with Social Security. But we probably lost a couple of Senate seats over it. So. We talked to Alan Greenspan this morning, had a wonderful conversation with him. And I... I gather, although we didn't really ask him specifically, that in this climate today, you, you couldn't do what you did in 1983. Do, do you oh, think it's no. possible? It's too uh, political. When you get, get Claude Pepper on your side, you know, with Mr. Senior, and get a guy like Greenspan chairing the commission, and people like Moynihan, who had a lot of clout with liberal, moderate Democrats. Uh, By the way, Greenspan went out of his way to credit you and Moynihan with being the people who were really responsible yeah. for saving the commission. Yeah, I think we did. On, you know, the, January 12, 1983, when we just almost at the same time blurted out, we can't, we can't let this happen or something. But, uh, and I never thought, like I the Pat's gotten the credit he deserves. Like I told you, I tried to get AARP to run a piece about Pat Moynihan and Social Security. He was dead, you know. Didn't want to. What was your first impression of Bill Clinton in the White House? Because uh, there are these stories about you going down there, and it's one of the stories is what? About the donuts? Or the yeah, first meeting. I said, God, you don't even have donuts in this place. You know, they've always had donuts for the Republicans. Next meeting, we had donuts. 
<coughs> had him every meeting after that. I thought he's a very charming guy, and uh, I helped him out on NAFTA, which look, I'm not sure I to look back on it. And they were supposed to help me out on something, which never happened, where we could let our companies get out of this WHO stuff when they had adverse biased rulings. We are going to set up a retired appellate justices, bipartisan. Anyway, and I remember talking to him about uh, Monica Lewinsky, and I told him what I thought he should do was to get a letter signed by 34 senators saying there's no way we're going to convict have it in your pocket. Then I wrote the op-ed piece for the New York Times, which I think he would have accepted, you know, kind of an admission that I did something wrong and maybe a rebuke, and that would have been it. It turned out I think he won. The politics of it, I mean, the Republicans knew it was not going anywhere, and... uh, they were hell bent to try to make it happen, but those are the kind of the times you kind of wish you were up there so you could sort of so we'll hold it. It's but he was always good to visit with, and uh, you know when they appointed Ginsburg, which I think I probably repeating myself here, but she lives right down the hall from us, and he called me to say he was going to do this, and, you know, he said, I want to get somebody close to Bob Dole, you know, she's my neighbor, so that was his way of kind of, I said, well, I, I don't agree with her philosophy, she's a nice, wonderful lady, and and he said, well, can you kind of move it along, you know, and I said, sure, I don't, and we did, and she got 96 votes. That wouldn't happen today, would it? No, you see Alito and Roberts. I mean, they filibuster and postpone and postpone, and then we had Breyer was next, and we knew him. He worked for Kennedy, a nice guy, liberal. But the Constitution gives the president the right to, if they're qualified, to make appointments. So he got ninety-seven votes, I think. So this shows how much it changed in. 15 years. You know, that's, that's a, at least a huge question. But, you know, as we've been working on this, and I thought for 30 years about this, I mean, if you look at your career, I mean, if you go back to 76, Ford Dole, two guys from the Midwest, the Republican Party really had a Midwest base. Um, it was conservative, but it was kind of a, you know, Main Street conservatism. Yeah. It was economic conservatism. It had a healthy skepticism about government, but not nihilism about government. It wasn't libertarian. It wasn't reflexively hostile. It recognized that there were a lot of people who needed help and couldn't get help from anywhere else, was at least open to that. Um, It wanted to keep government out of the classroom, the boardroom, and the bedroom. There's a whole generation that grew up in the Depression and World War II who were accustomed to shared sacrifice. And that meant, as Eisenhower famously said in his farewell address, you don't plunder 
future generations. That's your Republican yeah. Party, your conservatism. Yeah, we are Eisenhower Republicans. That's always my view. Well, and but if you look at, I mean, you look at your public career, say from the mid seventies to yeah. the mid nineties, it's almost like you were chasing this caboose. Yeah. That's that's always well. Then just, abortion popped up in seventy four. You know, let's face it. Uh, Nixon never worried about that issue. I don't think Ford ever did. Even I'm not sure it was such odd button in '76. No, but then it became you know a big, big, big issue, and <clears throat> and that sort of <clears throat> started defining different groups and different parties and different whatever. Uh, yeah, we were always a party. That's what always confounded me, even in the Reagan years, when we were going to spend, spend, spend. I thought we were always a party of the balanced budget. We were the old-time Republicans, and Ford believed in that. He vetoed 51 bills, wasn't it, in one year? Uh, and suddenly, we get Art Laffer said, all you got to do is cut taxes and keep on spending, and you'll have a surplus. Now, something I never, I'm not an economist, I never understood it. Pete Domenici never understood it. Uh, most people in our party at that time, like Henry Bellman, farmer from Oklahoma, great guy, I'd say a moderate Republican, moderate conservative. You know, we thought you were supposed to balance your budget like people did at home. When you didn't have the money, you didn't spend it. It's almost, but it's even more than that, it's almost a moral or at least an ethical imperative. Yeah. To live within your means, at the very least, not to borrow from your kids. Yeah. And that's gone out the that's window. That's gone. Yeah. It's just, huh, take it from the rich. You know. And, and Somebody said even Whoopi Goldberg was complaining the other day about the estate tax. I said, well, we're making headway. So <laughs> why should I have to pay again? I paid the 40%. Now I've got to, la, la, la. I said, oh, boy, that's what I like to hear. What, what are the consequences to, to the Republican Party and to conservatism if you toss that aside? I mean, if, if you no longer define yourself. Well, look what happened in 2006. I mean, I think the Iraq War was primary, but, you know, we were spending money faster than Democrats. And as far as all these little pet projects and earmarks, <laughs> I think we owe the world's record with Ted Stevens and, other, and his colleague Don Young and other people. Of course, there are others like Mirtha and others that just as bad or worse. But that's this disease now. You pass a big bill and there's at least 2,000 earmarks. I didn't say we never had them, but, you know, you'd, boy, if you got one little project for your state, oh, boy, that's a big deal. And I was the leader. So uh, it's all kind of changed. It's just keep on piling it up and... But I also sense that, I mean, that you were, again, you were rising to the top of your field at the very time that, that the cultural the field side. was leaving. Yeah. Well, well yeah. <laughs> but I mean. The field kept, they kept changing the goalposts. That's the best way to describe it. I mean, I was on the five-yard line, then they moved it. Then I was on the 15-yard line. Then when I about to got there again, they moved it again. No, that's absolutely, that's brilliant. But I was going to say, but I mean, these whole raft of cultural issues that yeah. kind of came in to yeah. redefine conservatism. Yeah. Whereas the old conservatism basically said, we mind our own business. Yeah, keep we the government people, away. We don't want any government 
except for farmers. You know, we, went, we like those little subsidies out in Kansas. Not even federal aid for education. That was a big thing in my first house race because, you know, and we still don't have, well, we have a lot of for math and science special things. But uh, let the local people do it. Let the school boards do it. Let, you know, uh, but now we're what what DC what fifty percent dropouts in high school. So I've 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 come to the point that there's got to be there ought to be universal that higher education of some kind. It's like high school and grade school. If you're qualified, if you don't have a college degree. These days, I don't know what you do. Well, you mentioned farmers. What is it philosophically or politically or both? What What do you think is the right role for the, for the government in terms of uh, for farmers? agriculture? Yeah. Well, I used to have a guy in a hardware store in Smith Center, Kansas, used to say, I got, I got all these hammers left over I can't sell. Now, can you get me a program? where I can get paid for these hammers I didn't sell, like like we're paying my the farmers for crops they don't raise, you know, all that stuff. Well, you can't, you can't win because he's right. I mean, uh, on the other hand, you, you need some safety net because they are producing, and the, the way the system works, you know, the bigger producers get more of the money. And that's just the way it works. And so that's always a headline. Ten <clears> percent <throat> of the producers get ninety percent of the money. Well, it's not quite that bad. I think it's about twenty-eight uh, percent of the producers get fifty-eight percent of the money. But uh, but we even pay now. We even send our dashels a Democrat. I'm a, we put together a bipartisan farm bill uh, this past year. They're still paying farmers when corn is almost $4 a bushel, an 18 cent a bushel government payment, which even Tom Daschle said, you know, they shouldn't be doing that. We ought to take that money and put it into energy or somewhere. But uh, the only good thing, or the better thing about the Farm Bill is that we now include all the nutrition programs because we were having trouble passing the farm bill in, I think, in the 70s. So we married it up with food stamps and WIC and school lunch, and that way we get the city people to vote for it and the farm people to vote for it. So uh, But there used to be the American Farm Bureau Federation was you know, pretty much against subsidies, except maybe what they call a, a loan program where you could borrow have some money, and if the price went up, you could still make a profit. But they, you know, they're now sort of joined the chorus with their arm out. But, uh, Let me ask you about the health care package in the early days of the Clinton presidency, obviously Mrs. Clinton's uh, baby. Um, did did, did Sheila talk to you about it? Uh, we talked about it a little, yeah. We, we I told him, if you can get Sheila Burke to vote for it, I'll vote for it. No, <laughs> well, but in fact, there was an alternative, wasn't there? I mean, it was 
Did Senator Chafee have? Uh, I appointed Senator Chafee to a committee because he was a you know a lot of common sense, little to the left of most people in the party, but still a good Republican. And I think with also was a there was another conservative in the group, so it wasn't just Chafee. But yeah, they were. I don't remember the details. They're getting close to some, and, and remember Mitchell kept us in part of the recess, trying to get a bill passed. And then finally, I think August fifteenth, he gave up. But uh, my view is that I remember Mrs. Clinton coming to see me, and she's very nice, and and a lot of us didn't know why she should be doing this. She wasn't accountable to anybody. She hadn't been sworn into office. Uh, this wasn't a little trivia thing. This was national health care, and she wasn't accountable. It wasn't being done by HHS. It was being done through the White House in these secret meetings. So we just, it all started off in a kind of a bad way. Uh, the president's anointed his wife to be the new health czar. But anyway, we had meetings, and uh, she came by and very nice. I think we met at least twice. And then her people started meeting with Sheila, and we, I remember meeting at the White House with Senator Benson, Bob Beckwood, President Hillary, Democrats. And, but we didn't do enough of that. And pretty soon I got to be, you know, their way or the highway. And then Senator Specter's office came up with a chart. <laughs> you start off way up here. And you go through all these, and finally down, way down the corner, the patient finally gets help. <laughs> and so that killed it. I yeah, mean, the I, bill was 1,342 pages. Yeah. But that chart was designed by somebody in Arlen's office. Uh, it really uh, caught on. And uh, I, who did that? I, I used to know, I think it somebody named Sylvie. But anyway, uh, But were. Sheila was telling me, I think it was Sheila, years and years ago, we had what we called a 3D bill, the Dole Domenici Danforth bill, which Sheila said, you know, back in the 70s, that was pretty progressive stuff. And it doesn't differ, well, in many areas, but, but there's some similarity in what we were doing back there and what Hillary's trying to do now. Because we had an insurance pool where, where poor people couldn't get insurance. Somebody had to take them, not just cherry pick, take the healthy people. And uh, so I'm going to have to dig that out and take a look at the, the, the three Ds. Uh, Sheila probably knows all the details. but So health care is a big issue, no question about it. What's well, interesting because... Um First of all, Clinton later on said he realized he made a mistake. He should have started off with welfare reform and, and put health care. Yeah, but he didn't want welfare reform. He vetoed it twice. Yeah. And then after I started running my campaign for president, then he signed the welfare reform bill. Uh, Over the misgivings, by the way, of a lot of his oh, yeah, advisors. No, he, yeah. And after, too, of course, that was earlier, but... Uh, uh, he, 
union people didn't like NAFTA. Now Hillary was going to, first she was going to repeal it, now she's just going to modify it. I think he, I think Bill told her, wait a minute, that, you know, that was one of my proud achievements. Uh, but, uh, well, the, the sense is, is that Clinton came into office, maybe with an unrealistic set of, of what could be done, and he wasn't interested in incrementalism. I mean, the whole the problem with the health care plan, among other things, was they wanted 100% now. Yeah. And offered 95%, they said, no, that's not good enough. One sense is he at least learned over time that you're pretty lucky to get 95%. Well, Reagan didn't take 70, you know. Well, I think his first mistake was the first bill he sent up was a spending bill. And it was David Bourne who blew the whistle on it. It wasn't a Republican. We were all against it, but Bourne was out there on the floor. And he was going to, I think he made a lot of promises to different constituencies in the campaign. So he had the money going here, money going here, and really didn't create any jobs or anything. It was just sort of a payoff, and it was defeated. And it, so we started off with that defeat. And I, I think both Clinton and Bush just made basic mistakes by not putting their arms around Congress. You know, Democrats and Republicans, bring them down there, not just a photo op, but have them down there once a week and put your arms around them and say, come on. And I think that's the only way we're going to get Back to where we were, you know, way back with Gerald Ford's days when he and Tip, of course, we didn't have that many horses in the house those days, but we were still a factor. Uh, seemed like things got done. I don't know. Let me ask you, it's interesting, because I asked Walter Mondale this, and he, I must say, he was very agreeable. Um, does it make sense to you that one reason 30 years ago why the two parties found it easier in some ways to work together 30 or 40 years ago was because 30 or 40 years ago each of the parties had liberals and conservatives, southerners, northerners. That, 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 I mean, when Mondale arrived in the Senate, it was only a few years before you, if you wanted to get anything done, and you were from Minnesota, you had to work with Dick Russell and John Stennis, and you had yeah. to develop personal relationships that in some ways transcended ideology. I mean, yeah. so, so you develop the knack of compromising internally. Well, plus the fact that we thought we were the permanent major minority, and if we were going to get anything done, Republicans, we had to reach out to Democrats. But that's true, particularly, it wasn't so bad in the Senate because you had this block of Jim Eastlands and others, what, 8, 10, 12, where you didn't need uh, but 40 Republicans generally, 41 or 2. But I remember working with Mondale on trade stuff because we both came from farm states and this stuff like this. Uh, but there, I don't know. We didn't seem to be – we disagreed. and We'd go out on the floor and debate, and, but we never called anybody names, I don't think. Well – Hollings did a couple of times, Benet Brith and a couple of other stupid things he said. But uh, uh, I thought it was more civil. I don't know, maybe. No, he maybe. made it clear that uh, he, he said, you know, your friendship, 
preceded 76. Yeah. And he went back and he talked about the things that you'd worked on together yeah. and, and, of course, the Humphrey. And I introduced him when he was ambassador to Japan. I went up to introduce him. So, no, it, it was different then. I mean, you saw you. So I lost today. Well, tomorrow maybe I'll win. So. Why do you think it's different? Is it I because, I mean, what I guess I'm getting at, I'm not being very articulate. Yeah. For years, people say, oh, we need to have a liberal party and a conservative party. Well, guess what? You got them. Yeah. And you got parties that only have liberals and only have conservatives. Are you happy with what you have? Yeah. Yeah, you know, what few moderates we have are dwindling. I mean, the New York Times is taking care of them one, you know, one or two a year. And we still got Susan Collins, who's got a 76% approval rating after MoveOn.org spent a million dollars. But she's in a tough race. And she's, and John Sununu, I mean, the New England just about, New York Times about wiped us out. But uh, there's got to be somebody in the middle somewhere. I mean, there's got to I don't mean they have to be, uh, you know, sort of moderate, liberal, moderate, conservative, where they just don't vote straight, straight down the line. Do you think that's one reason why so many people are turned off, people outside this city who oh. are not ideologically driven? Probably don't pay much attention. But well, you can tell. I can tell it in uh, more difficult raising money, Republicans particularly, because uh, they don't have the sources and others. But uh, and I was listening last night to uh, Norm Ornstein, who's you know he's a Democrat, and uh, who's the uh, uh, Barone, Michael. Oh yeah, very good. And Barone said. If you're talking about how the Republicans could be in trouble because there are fewer volunteers showing up for Republican candidates than Democratic candidates. Uh, now, maybe that's because Hillary's nationally known and Barack is, you know, is a very charming guy, new face, fresh. Uh, but these guys kind of make sense, you know. But even that, that they're saying this could go Republicans on right down to the convention. You're, never, you're not going to pick somebody on February 5th. Well, at least it'll make for an exciting convention. Yeah, but uh, who, they've got five different scenarios for Republicans, only, uh, I think, two for the Democrats. Either going to be Hillary or Obama, and they could go past February 5th. Probably not. That's their view. Let me the flip that coin because there's also something contradictory here. People say over and over again they want the parties to work together. They want people to, you know, rise above narrow partisan ideological differences. Well, the one that means is make a deal, you know, or give in. Well, well <laughs> but then, but then you know, if you get tagged as a deal maker, uh, you know, and oh, he's a legislator, as if that. Doesn't mean you could be a president or a leader. Yeah. It's, it, yeah, isn't true. that a little bit contradictory that yeah. people say they want one thing, but they don't reward? That? They want they want leadership. They want you know they want somebody they can look to and say I think I think she or he is, you know I don't agree with them. I think they're they're probably pretty honest people. Or they're trying to get something done, and that isn't always spending money. I mean that isn't how you measure what you're getting done. Uh, 
And it's not always cutting taxes. I mean, there's other things going on, too. But uh, I don't know. It's I think we're in for, what, another several years of this gridlock? You're the historian. You're good. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's hard to see how it... And in some ways, you can see a scenario. Say Obama gets elected. Yeah. Expectations will be awfully high. Oh, yeah. And if he can't gratify them. On the other hand, you know, if he gets a really strongly Democratic Congress. Yeah. I mean, people are looking for John Kennedy again. And yeah, well, I listened to Mitch McConnell last night. He was there, this little fundraiser for the party at our place. And, uh, and and he admitted the people looking for change, but he he said, "But well, they've looked and they don't like the change they got." You know, the Pelosi the Congress at twenty four percent or something. Bush, what Bush went up five points to thirty six yeah. or something. But uh, uh, of course, they're trying to paint a rosy picture for next year, which doesn't look that good on the Senate side. But. Uh, it's, I don't know how you judge really what the American, you know, the fact that we won a seat in Ohio, which was going to be a toss-up and turn out to be 58%. I served as Bob Latta's father, Del Latta, in the, in the House. But, uh, so, you know, it's not all bad, but as a Republican, it's, it doesn't look that good, particularly congressionally. I don't know about presidential, I don't know what, you think Hillary's going all the way, or? Yeah, I still think that it's hers to lose. Yeah. I, I but just what think they were a... saying yesterday in this debate is that the trouble in Iowa, and no state should have the power that Iowa has, uh, she's not doing well with second choices. And in the caucus, you know, if you don't get a certain threshold, then you've got to give your votes to somebody else. And she doesn't do as well as Obama or Edwards with those people getting less than, was it, 10%, whatever the threshold, who have to vote for somebody else. And that's what she's, and that's what happened to George Bush in 88. He was ahead, but not enough ahead, and when we got to second choices yeah. is when I won. But the interesting thing is, I think they played it all wrong. I mean, I think without running a negative campaign, it seems to me the Clinton people, Hillary people, should be raising the question that Mondale asked of Gary Hart. You know, where's the beef? Yeah. That's how you run against Obama. It's yeah. not what may have happened 40 years ago or even lack of experience because you encompass that in, okay, this is an attractive, charismatic guy. What's he going to do? They've been trying to do that, but they're finding, again, I listen to all this stuff, had this focus group on, and if you criticize another Democrat, that line goes down. Who's, who's the young guy, you know, the pollster? Oh, Frank Luntz. Yeah, I don't yeah. think much of Frank Luntz, but, <laughs> yeah. but he, he, you know, it's right there on the recording machine when Fred Thompson refused to answer the question the other day. Boy, the number shot way up because he's not going anywhere. And when, uh, when Biden talked about religion in the debate the other day, Numbers went down. You don't do that in a Democratic group. He, he even quoted some uh, hymn, and the number went straight down. And they wouldn't even talk about the war. The moderator said, we're not going to talk about the war. A terrible moderator. 
and they added uh, keys. Doesn't even have an office there. She wanted to make the Republican feel larger, so she, and she took two of the Democrats off, Kuchinich and Gravel, who shouldn't have been on anyway. But why should Tranquito and and yeah. uh, the congressman Duncan and Hunter and, Hunter and uh, Alan Keyes, of all crazy people, be on? Anyway, that's the last <laughs> debate for a while. But uh, they got the best political reporter, though, the David Yepsen. Come on, register. He's good. Anyway, what was your relation? What has been your relationship with the second Bush White House? Uh, I just got a picture from President Bush. You know, autographed. Uh, something like "Still Doing Good for America." You know, it's this commission on veterans. You know, it's not close, but if I. I weighed in pretty heavily on the VA selection and introduced General Peake at the hearing along with uh, Senator Inouye a couple weeks ago. So it's, uh, you know, it's, I don't have anything to ask them, so. And I've met with Hadley a couple of times about Libya. The law firm wants to take Libya on. I've met with Lautenberg and all the other people involved in Lockerbie, because we think we might be able to help. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, so they've been good about giving me certain information, you know. But, uh, and I think Bush, you know, one-on-one, I mean, I guess tell talking to these veterans we take down, or these guys lost their legs and all this stuff, he's great with them, the one-on-one. And they all... This one guy, Jose Ramos, lost his arm. Boy, he thinks Bush is great. He was on our commission. Bush has had us down there, what, three times? And the last time spent two hours just visiting with all these different... So, you know, it's pretty, pretty hard to beat. Is there such a thing as presidents being unlucky? Yeah, I think he's unlucky. Well, history's going to have to judge preemptive strikes and and why the whole world community said they have WMDs and they didn't and and was it worth it? Uh, By contrast, like Colin Powell seems to lead a charmed life. Well, Colin Powell is he helps lead a charmed life. Yeah, I mean he's very cautious. And he can, he's such a great guy, he can just pick and choose. He doesn't have to go out on a limb. But I, I say he's been very discreet as far as, you know, he could really stir up a ruckus in this town if he wanted to. Uh, and I know Armand, he used to be my AA, and I know what he thinks of the Bush White House. Uh, and he's really the guy that the Valerie playing. That's all Armitage, <laughs> poor <laughs> scooter Libby. And Armitage got off without anything. Anyway. Yeah, yeah I think uh, Colin, well, he, you know, probably Hillary mentioned she'd bring in Republicans like Colin Powell. And he's a great guy. I talked to him in 96. I didn't ask him because I knew what the answer was going to be. When I went out to his house, he had a little reception for me and went in a little room and 
I talked about my race. Said, well, you know, I know it's tough. It's uphill. The economy's good. Da da da. But you know, who knows what can happen? And they said, well, you kind of wish me luck. And in other words, don't ask me the question. <laughs> Would you be my running mate? <laughs> so. But he, you, you would have, would he have been your first choice? Oh yeah, if he could have gotten him. Yeah, he went out to Iowa. He, he tried it, and they weren't ready for Barack Obama yet in Iowa because he, a greater guy as Powell was. And I don't. I think he's much stronger than Obama. He was running fourth in the polls in Iowa. Well, he's in the wrong party. Yeah, if he wants to run for president. Yeah, but he, you know, he had pretty. No, I'd say moderate conservative views, you know. Uh, but, but you remember that at the convention when he he talked about yeah. affirmative action and uh, he got some booze. And, I mean, if you had put him on your ticket, there would have been, he, he would have been nominated, but you would have had a rump movement probably, on the floor yeah. of the convention. Yeah, probably, and then you got... Somebody like something happens to Bob Dole, they're going to be a black president. Yeah. But anyway, I was looking at it, <laughs> looking at somebody I thought was capable and had some. See, that's interesting because, you know, you know the rap on presidents who pick running mates because you never pick someone who might rival you or overshadow you or have your own constituency. Or, you know what I mean. I mean, there's yeah. that complaint has been made about. Yeah, I don't believe you ought to pick, just go out and try to pick all those smarter people than you are. <laughs> but as long as you've got pretty good political sense, it, they may be much smarter in the field that they're in. That's what you want. And I just thought Powell had this great touch with the American people, more than I had. And I could see him reaching out to independents and moderates that we were probably going to lose because Clinton was going to pick him up. And uh, Scalia was another one that was on our list. I never talked to him. But <laughs> that would John Boner, Boehner wanted me to take Scalia, get all the Catholic vote. So, Can you imagine how many times in the course of that campaign he would have said something? That would have to be taken back in the next yeah, news cycle. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> uh, well, I said a few things myself. So. <laughs> well, you, I, it's like Reagan when he wants to bring the missiles back. You know, we've launched them or something. I don't know. What, what was that quote? Oh, yeah. We've just launched. Uh, in five minutes, we're, we're launching an attack on the Soviet Union. He was, thought he was not oh. on, <laughs> air, on the air. But, see, but Reagan could get away with it. I know, yeah. They were charmed or lucky or whatever people. But I, I think you're right. That's a good point on Bush. Uh, I think he's smart, smart enough. Uh, again, I think he made the basic mistake of not working more closely with Congress because he came here as a compassionate conservative, and it got to be all politics. You know, me against them, or and then the war in Iraq just changed everything. I mean. Suddenly, all the focus on domestic programs and relationship with other countries, and had to take a back seat. I mean, wasn't any much of a choice. And look at all the money we've spent. It you could have spent on education. So you can look at all the different things that happened. Plus, you know, a loss of life. But uh, where were you in the morning of nine eleven? 
9-11, I was just headed to Walter Reed. I just walked to the front door, and the doorman said, Mr. Walker said, have you heard about that plane flying into that tower in New York? I said, no, it must have been a terrible accident. By the time I got to Walter Reed, of course, the second plane, and what, and people run all over the hospital, they're getting mobilized, and they're running the Pentagon, and the whole place was in turmoil. Uh, so... And that, I have to go back. Where were you at Pearl Harbor Day? I was in uh, my fraternity in Lawrence, Kansas. It was a Sunday morning, wasn't it? Yeah. And we were shocked. We were just kids, you know. And we couldn't believe it. So. Did you sense that day or immediately thereafter that it was going to change your life? Shortly thereafter, because everybody started signing up. You know, I, I wasn't one of those. <laughs> but a lot of these young guys, you know, join the Navy, join the Army. You know, the, you know, everybody wanted to do something. And, uh, yeah, look, it, as I remember, it was, you know, Roosevelt was pretty, we, we didn't get in. You know, we weren't too anxious to get in that war. What was the, what was the vote, one vote margin? Well, earlier, well, yeah. I mean, but the draft was passed by one vote. Yeah, one vote, yeah. Was it Rankin or somebody, uh, some woman, remember, in Utah or somewhere, well, Idaho? Or, yeah, or Montana or something Montana. like that. Montana. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, but, uh, but once Pearl Harbor, of course, the president goes up to the Capitol and But he was, he was, uh, well, he was sort of a mentor of mine, too, because he overcame disabilities. So. And I remember the day he would, died, I think it was April 12th, 45, uh, well, no, it was. That's the day we were supposed to have our big push in Italy. And we had to delay it two days because we were all grief-stricken. And I've often wondered what would have happened if he'd... <laughs> Hung on a few more days, <laughs> maybe, maybe I'd have been okay. But that's kind of selfish. But uh, you, you became a Republican. You've talked about the reasons you became a Republican, which which suggested, you know, numbers rather than ideology. Yeah, well, I kind of added that. But yeah, yeah. How? <laughs> I mean, how? Over the but over the years, you you know, very loyal Republican. Yeah. How did that loyalty, what does that loyalty develop around? I mean, is we it had a, a young, well, We had or? a young guy and I liked a lot named John Wolk, who was a little county attorney in our little county. And he was wanting to leave, and he, I was in law school, and he thought I ought to come back and run for that job. And, and uh, But before I did that, I thought I'd run for the state legislature. And I think that's... I don't know how, who who really got me in. I think probably John Wolfe got me interested in politics. And then the law librarian, Beth Bowers, who was a Democrat, who talked four of us young law students into running for office. We didn't know anything about public office. And what, three of us got elected. So that was all by accident. And uh, she just thought more young people ought to be involved. And she's just a very wonderful lady. And, and we'd go down there and talk about, so three of us, four of us finally picked up the challenge and did it. Yeah, but I also wonder, because this was about the time Ike 
51. So. Yeah, Ike comes back the next year, and you know, there's this overlap. But I wonder, since he was a hero of yours, whether it in some ways made it a lot easier to be a Republican. Oh, yeah. In fact, Eisenhower I, was I stood out there in the rain. When did he come to Abilene? What, what, in uh, June of 52. Yeah, I, I was there. I stood in the rain, and, and, oh, boy, this is, we were all Eisenhower people in Kansas, you know. And that's, that's where you, even our little local paper used to like a fellow named Webb Hawkins, who was a, a moderate Republican. And he coined the term in our little community, Eisenhower Republican. You ought to be an Eisenhower Republican. You shouldn't be, you know, Joe McCarthy, whatever. I don't know who, who, who the right-wingers were those days. Maybe Taft, I guess. But that sounded good to me. What little I knew about it. <laughs> so why not be an Eisenhower Republic? Did yeah, you, he was my hero. So, Did you um, did you ever have a vote you wish you could take back? Oh, lots of them. Yeah. Uh, if you're the leader, sometimes you have to vote with some guy who offers an amendment or, or lady just to show that they've got a little support because somebody reports that back home and got four votes. <laughs> Or something. Yeah, I've done some of those. And uh, I voted against uh, the attorney general from Georgia. Griffin Bell. Griffin Bell. I apologize to him for it. Because the secretary of transportation, black guy, Bill, Bill Coleman. Bill Coleman's a great lawyer, a great yeah, guy. Yes. Called me up and said, Bob, you know, you're the Republican. You're a Republican leader. You're going, you can't vote for this guy. And he gave me all his record, and I think I was one of 19. And Griffin Bell never hold it, held against me. In fact, he endorsed me in 96 in Atlanta. So I, I kind of regretted that vote because he wasn't a racist, turned out, and uh, just a good old Southern gentleman. Uh, In some ways, like what I think later on, people came to have second thoughts about voting against Clement Hainsworth when Nixon nominated him to the Supreme Court. Well, I think they realized that they'd, you know, politics had taken over. And uh, that's another vote I shouldn't have voted the way I did. I voted for him. He was a bad nominee. Hainsworth or Carswell? Oh, Hain oh, I voted yeah. for Hainsworth. I yeah. No, I worked with Fritz Hollings on Hainsworth. That was a yeah. yeah Senator By made a mistake on Hainsworth. Little petty things about twenty four dollars or something, or I don't know, little tiny. And he was came from a long line, good family. Uh Oh, I'm thinking of the other two that Nixon right. sent up. G. Harold Carswell. Carswell. <laughs> the mediocre. Remember Roman Ruska said that's, that's mediocre Ruska, people. We need medio mediocrity on the bench. <laughs> well, we, but the vote was 55 to 45. Birch by won it. So, and he won Ainsworth. So we ended up with... Uh, uh, Blackman. Harry Blackman. But... Uh, the guy from Stevens, was he? No, that was Ford. Let's see. Harry no, Black Ford was. Well, yeah, Harry Blackman and William Rehnquist. Not bad. 
and Bob lost his seat at 80. Yeah. I mean, that lot of good it did him. He'd be a running mate for Hillary, his son, maybe. Yeah. Uh, well, do you ever, uh, how about when sort of, <laughs> I'm sure it happens to everyone, but when you voted for something because really constituents, constituent pressure, and in retrospect you wish you hadn't, or... I mean, I know you've resisted that a lot. Yeah, well, I don't, uh, I probably, uh, well, farm bills, all that kind of stuff, you know, it's it's really not pressure. Uh, You're from a farm state, you're on the Ag Committee, (laughs) better hell vote for it, you know. And in those days, we used to, Senator Talmadge would say, okay, you wheat guys go work out the wheat program, and you guys, he didn't care what party we were in, then we'll come back and we'll put the bill together. You know, and Senator Eleanor was the same from Louisiana. So there never was any partisanship in the, or with Russell Long in the Finance Committee. You know, you, well, let's work this out. We can do this out. And it was Russell Long who gave us a famous alternative minimum tax because there were 20 millionaires who didn't pay taxes the year before. And it wasn't Russell's idea. It came from somebody, other senator, I won't name. And so now we've got this mess where you got, what, 20? 30 million people. Uh, so, uh, you know, some of these great ideas. In fact, I've got to check and see if I voted for that on Final Passage. But uh, I probably did if Russell Long wanted me to. He, he was a great legislator. He'd get up on the Senate floor and there'd be 50 amendments, 8 o'clock at night, and he'd just start taking them. Yeah, I'll take it, take it, take it, take it. And you know they were dead. They weren't going anywhere. <laughs> He'd go to conference and out they go. But you get a press release back home. My amendment was adopted in the Senate. You know, it's all a game. Without naming names, are there senators um, – who can empty the place when they get up to speak, and 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 conversely, who when someone gets up to speak, people people really come in to, to listen. I mean, is that? There are a lot of the first ones. <laughs> uh, and I would, you know, Dirksen would always bring a few people in, and I only, you know, he died shortly after I came to the Senate. Uh, Generally, in the closing debate, you know, people would listen to Robert Byrd if it was on appropriation or if he didn't give you a long history lesson first. Or, uh, you know, the, the leaders. And sometimes you'd ask people to come to the floor. We need to show we've got support on the Republican side. And Mitchell would say, we need to show we've got some. So they weren't always there voluntarily. Uh, they were always urged to come. Names. Probably not taken, but uh, but there are a lot of people when they get up to speak. It's a good time to go to the men's room or have lunch or maybe even take a vacation. You speak of Senator Byrd because I I sense that that was a relationship that evolved. Yeah, he didn't trust me at all. Yeah, it didn't. When I first started, he didn't. Thought I was too partisan, said so. I mean, he's one thing about Senator Byrd, he's an honest man. And uh, we got along fine. 
I told you the story about it. He wanted me to find some big project in Kansas. And he'd help me get through the committee, and I couldn't find any. So, But he said, you never asked for enough around here. And he was serious. He was just a friend. And I said, Robert, it's never Bob. It's Robert. And I remember he lost his grandson, and he kept in his office the grandson's shoe. And whenever you go to visit him, he'd, he'd always mention his grandson. He's very, you know, talk about an amazing career. Poor guy to leave now. I mean, he's, he's not well, but he won't. But uh, were there people again, without mentioning names? I assume people who were there who, like him, should should have moved on. I mean, how how do you deal with with that? I mean, how do you how do you communicate? My theory has always been they don't want to pack. <laughs> They've been there so long. Hell, I'll just die and let somebody else worry about packing all this stuff. But uh, yeah, I think that I don't know if you can impose an age limit, but there ought to be some time you just kind of walk away from. It. I think like Trent Lott, sixty six, he's got some good years left for whatever reason he left. Uh, but uh, some people just love it. You know, people like Lautenberg, he doesn't need them. The guy's a multi, multi million. 80, what is he, 83? Going to run again? I went up to visit him a couple of months ago, and he, he doesn't, you know, he likes it. He just, something to do. <laughs> what do you do when you got everything else? You buy, you get, buy a Senate seat, you know. But, uh, yeah, there ought to be. A time when you kind of walk away from it. Have you ever, yeah. has there ever been a situation where informally colleagues went to someone either and said, you know, you know it's just either you know, their age or, or other drinking. reasons, drinking or just the, the equivalent of an intervention almost? Well, Pat, you know, not getting the names. Right. Some of that happened with Bob Packwood. I never thought he was treated fairly, uh, uh, and by today's to, today he wouldn't have a problem. My view, people have a little different view of some of that. But uh, and there are other senators on each side who had bad drinking problems. You had to escort him off the floor from time to time. I think I think, and I didn't serve. I was one leader who didn't serve liquor in my office. I figured if they want to get drunk, they weren't going to do it in my office. They go downtown or go somewhere else. So we didn't, we served Coke and whatever. But because uh, the old days, they used to go to the drinking hole, would be the leader's office Democrat, Johnson, Dirksen, which is fine. I don't have any problem. But I, you didn't think. Do you think television has changed that? I mean, bringing television to the Senate might have had an impact. Might have. Might have. Yeah, I don't know what it. Do you think on balance it's been a good thing bringing television? Yeah. I thought at first there'd be well, there are. You know, some people up there every day making a speech for people back in North Dakota, or wherever. 
they're from, and uh, I think overall it's worked pretty well. I think people kind of get after several years, it kind of just part of the part of the deal. Yep. I don't think anybody really thinks how, how big is the C-SPAN audience. You ought to know. You know, they. I, the only thing I know is they have done statistics because they don't have ratings that say supposedly in the course of a week, who knows what they watch, yeah. but in the course of a week, between 30 and 40 million people. Yeah. So, you know, there's a big audience out there, and I guess somebody wanted to go out and, and I haven't watched it that closely, I mean, the Senate, the last, if there are any real grandstanders up there, but there are always a couple in both parties, you know. I, I remember some of them walking in, looking up to the press gallery to see if anybody's down there to write down their words. And sometimes the people come running out of the gallery, if it was, say, Ted Kennedy or somebody. And generally, if nobody came, the speeches were shorter, which is very nice. <laughs> so. Two last things. One, what, what did you want to do as president? What would your presidency have, have looked like? Uh, well, I think we'd had more emphasis on a balanced budget and probably uh, a little more emphasis on families, social programs, health care, uh, of course, strong defense. I don't like taxes either, so. But uh, I'd say, you know, a little right of center, if you could get it. I mean, again, you got to deal with Congress. Well, but that—that's interesting because when I've asked this to other people, it's interesting. A number of people have said, you know, he would have spent a lot of time on the Hill. Uh, I mean, he, he would have been—he would have been oh, sitting yeah. down. With, I know those guys. I mean, these are my friends, and uh, that's why. I think both, as I said before, both Bush and Clinton made a cardinal mistake. I mean, they great, might have been great governors, but it's a different place up here. And uh, that's why I thought Gerald Ford really, somebody really knew the Congress and got a lot of things done. Some, some weren't too good, but, well, that was like the wind program. That was his own. But he had friends. And... You've got friends, you know, sometimes politics, you can separate the two. Sometimes you can't, but, so. The uh, last thing, unfair question, but I have to ask it. I mean, how would you like to be remembered? Do you think about that? Uh, not a lot. I think, what well, I've said before, you know, uh, just put on my tombstone, veteran, you know, something like that. Uh, because we do a lot of work with veterans, still do every day doing something. And I really I've called Henry Waxham to thank him yesterday for the hearing. He had you, nobody's hearing yesterday about how the charities are ripping off these people for yeah. claiming they're helping veterans. Millions and millions, billions of dollars. And Henry, I had a little hand in it, passing on some stuff to him, and he had the hearing yesterday. And 
those are the kind of things that are important to me. I mean, see, that would surprise, I guarantee you, that would surprise most people to think that in this climate, Bob Dole and Henry Waxman are working hand in hand about something important to both of them. Well, I mean, it's just deeply offensive to think that these scoundrels, swindlers, are out there filling their pockets off the back of veterans. And I know this one guy, I even signed a letter for him. David Keene, remember that name? Was a big friend of this guy named Roger Chapin. And I think 10, 12, 13, 14, I may have even signed a letter because I believed, and he's the one who, I, I got a hold of Waxman's staff about two months ago and said, you know, you ought to look into this because I'll give you one example. A guy came to one of our commission hearings and just tore into everybody. And I said, Roger, you're getting ready to send out another fundraising letter. I can tell by your, by your testimony. Because he, and it turned out Fortune magazine did a piece on him where he just he owns three or four homes. and I think out of $26 million raised, $1 million went to veterans. And Henry thought that was a good thing to get into. So he has another hearing the 17th of January. Is money the single biggest change in the, over the last 40 years, the, the amount of money in politics, the amount of time spent fundraising? Oh, I, mean, is I that, hate it. Yeah. Well, I think the last time we met, we said a billion dollars to be president now, a billion I think we got what sixty-eight million in '96, and that's a lot of money. Now they don't take matching funds, or well, McCain may, but others may, but the top people won't. They don't need to. I don't know where it ends. I mean, it's uh, and nobody seems to complain about it anymore. I don't hear from the watchdog. Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, I think he's retired from. Sort of a public citizen. Uh, it's Fred, Fred Wertheimer. Yeah, Fred, I, I don't hear Fred anymore. I mean, I think he gave up. He used to be on it all the time, and he was right about 90% of the time of all the money being going into this, this, this. But I think Fred's probably retired now. But yeah, his wife was with PBS for a while. Oh, uh, Linda Wertheimer. Right. Yeah, sure. Yeah, she used to cover yep. us in the Senate, yeah. You know, All right. no, oh, no, last, last thing, because, you know, philosophical question, but explain to me, I mean, conservatives love the marketplace, great, um, but, but carried to extremes, I mean, people who make a religion, I mean, when Reagan talked about the magic of the markets, great phrase. But if you stop to think, I mean, for one example, say Fox, see, think of Rupert Murdoch, uh, think of a whole lot of things. The quest for sheer, unadulterated, unregulated profit is a very unconservative thing. I mean, if you look at the, the culture, the downward spiral in the culture, the coarsening of the culture, and, you know, there's a million examples, it's because it makes money. Yeah. And I mean, how do yeah, when conservatives refuse yeah. to acknowledge that anything carried to excess is dangerous? I mean, including 
the pursuit of, of, of money. Yeah, I think that's another advantage. I, I never had any rich friends. You know, I had a few people out in my little home state that had more, much more money than I ever had. But I didn't, you know, socialize and celebrities and all that, people with big money. So I, I think you're right. I mean, I think in both parties they've had a lot of influence. Actually, more in the Democratic Party these days than ours. I mean, well, it's amazing. When I was out in Los Angeles for PBS for the Democratic Convention, you'd sit in the hall all day long and listen to this populist rhetoric yeah. about fat cats, and then but you couldn't have an evening session because everyone had to get to the million dollar parties thrown by Hollywood moguls. Yeah. I mean, it was just absolute, um, you know, cognitive dissonance. I mean. Two different messages. Yeah, I want to create jobs. And I want people to make a profit and put it back in their business. Uh, but just to pile it up somewhere, you know, and you, know, you got people like the Gates family doing a lot of good with it. And you got Gates' father saying we shouldn't, uh, the estate tax is fine. Well, I suppose if you got a couple hundred billion, you know, what's a hundred billion? Uh, but uh, I don't know. But I've just never been on that tier, you know. Well, Ford hadn't either. He, he, you know, we know people with money and they friends, but yeah. I'm not hanging out with them. So, so. Last thing, guarantee you, last thing. People, politicians always say, um, I don't look back. You know, I don't live in the past. I live in the future. And, and, and I understand that. Um, do you look back? I mean, do you not as much as I used to. I used to look. I used to dream about what what I did wrong in '96, particularly in '88, because that's when I really, you know, I used to lie awake at nights. You know, what what, what did I do wrong? Because I could feel like we we're going to do it, and particularly in in '88, '96, uh, I thought we'd probably get there, but it it wasn't the same feeling. It was just. But I think anymore, I don't. I don't look back. You know, I figure. You know, I had a great experience. It didn't work. And you get to be eighty-four. You get. You no, know, I've got so many days left. What I'm going to do with? I'm going to spend tomorrow worrying about what happened in eighty-eight or seventy-three. Or <laughs> I better worry about what could happen tomorrow. So. Life's been pretty good though since ninety-six, hasn't it? Yeah. You've. I mean, you've done a lot of things. You, you, the memorial is an extraordinary oh, thing. Oh, been busy. I mean, Made a little money, been able to help my family. Got a lot of family members who need help, and and worked pretty hard. Did run around the country a lot, make you know, making these great speeches. I used to kid Clinton. I said, "I'll tell the truth for a lot for fifty thousand. You tell them whatever you tell them for three hundred. So anyway." <laughs> Listen, thank you. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> All right. But, you know, you've, you've almost become, I mean, you've become sort of the poster child for the World War II generation. I mean, there's a whole generation of Americans yeah. who I don't think they think of you necessarily as a politician. I no, think it's that you're right. You I'm a, the veteran. I'm, yeah. You're, I, I must you're, spend two hours a day average because I have to write out longhand, which I don't do very well, and then somebody else will type it. With emails from veterans, 
they either got a problem or they want to say thank you or I was on the honor flight and you were there to shake my hand or whatever. And, you know, you, you, that's how people know you. If they got a veteran's problem, I'm going to hear about it. They don't write Pat Roberts. <laughs> I, I, I just send it up to Pat Roberts. <laughs> I was going to say, why don't, you don't send it up to their senator or their congressman? Or? No, they write to me. I know, but you don't. You don't. Some of it I do. You know, when it gets real, because we don't have the staff. Right. But we've got good contacts with the VA and uh, DOD, and they've kind of agreed to help us with some of our stuff. And, and uh and then you, you make quite a few phone calls, but you know somebody calls this guy's 85 years old. He's in a hospital, and he'd really like to hear from you. You know you do that. Just nice little things. Doesn't cost anything. But you know the contrast to that is you know this town is full of people who at one time were big names, powerful people on the hill or elsewhere, and never adapt to life after. I answer every piece of mail that comes in this office. I mean, yep. And not a form letter. It's generally something I scribble out with these little yellow sticky pads and poor Ruth Ann has to (laughs) decipher them. And, uh, or either that or put them on a phone list. Some young guy called yesterday from Texas, Billy, somebody, he wants to get into politics. He's 30 years old, he's an Iraqi veteran. So I'm going to get him in touch with, I've already got the stuff, the Dallas County chairman and all this. So you get in all those little kind of things. But I mean, adapting to, you know, there are people who never get over the fact that they're no longer a big whatever shot. they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. And, and, and people's memories are pretty short. Yeah. I mean, shelf life. Now, you've beaten that, but I mean, yeah. you know, in part because of the ads and, and. I remember asking, I shouldn't say this because he's a good friend of mine. I said, asked Lloyd Handler, I said, what's the shelf life of the former chief of protocol? And you thought I just shot him with a 10-gauge. <laughs> I mean, it never ends if you're chief of protocol. <laughs> but uh, you're right. I mean, the shelf life is X, you know. And uh, if you're going to sit around all day thinking how important you, you were or whatever, Kind of a waste of time. That's kind of nice to have Elizabeth involved. And I don't. I've only been to the Hill since I left in '96, probably 20 times. So I don't go up there. And I think I've said I think I've taken people up to see about nine different senators: Kennedy, Biden, John Warner. Lautenberg, yeah. You know, people that introduce them or say, you know, we, I got a problem, Frank. I don't want to get my law firm involved if you're going to object to it. And I talked to Carl Levin about the same thing. So, you know, you do things like that, but we don't lobby people and go up and say, we got to have this. I did lobby Dan Inouye once uh, on an appropriation bill. And he tried to be helpful. It never happened, but uh, I decided I didn't want to do that anymore. Once was enough. Go up and ask your friend, can you get $4 million for this client of ours? 
has a good idea. It was about a blood thing it's supposed to be helpful battlefield wounds. Uh, so that was my last shot at that. 